Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. All right, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield, and you are going to love today's guest. It's Paula Payton. And Paula is someone that I was so fascinated by because not only does she have way more degrees than I have, but she has spent more time in her life learning about things I wish I knew than I could do in probably four lifetimes. She's an expert behavioral psychologist. She's a lecturer in the Applied Analytics degree program at Columbia. She's an expert in decision-making and digital and retail experiences, organizational agility, and how to use data to drive financial performance. So I'm excited to not only her to share her knowledge with us, but also how we can take that knowledge that she's accumulated and learn how to drive change in our own lives and in the organizations we work for. So Paula, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. It's really a pleasure to be here. Hello, everybody. Now, Paula, we always start every episode with our guests' why. So we really need to understand your why. We need to know where you've come from. We need to know who had that big influence on your life and, and why you are who you are today. So let's begin there. Ah, the why, the why. So I, I started out my, my life. Um, I was born in Aruba, actually. Let's go way back. I was born in Aruba. Uh, and had a, uh, a really um, story-like childhood there. I, I, I will say, growing up on a, on a desert island is um, is a is a lot of fun. This was the pre-Aruba days. Many of you may travel there for vacation, but this is back in the day when there wasn't wasn't too much there. I will I will uh, uh, share the fact that our, our zoo was comprised of three goats and two cats. That was the zoo in Aruba. Um, and and from there, um, my exposure to uh, the world began with. Um, the best storyteller that I ever met uh, in my in my short career at that time, which was my father. My father was a um, one of those prolific storytellers, and probably because there wasn't too much to do on our little island, uh, he would sort of gather around and tell stories of his um, of his childhood growing up in Seacliff, New York. And he was an avid sailor and an avid traveler, and that sort of that set up the sort of the landscape of things that I was interested in storytelling travel and of course getting to Aruba as often as possible. So um, that's, a, that's a little bit about sort of my very, very humble beginnings. Um, I have spent uh, quite a bit of my, uh, my career with one foot in, in academia and another foot in industry. And my favorite activity um, has been building bridges between those, those two um, ecosystems, if you will. So for example, um, when I was in graduate school, I would sort of, um, uh, and I was studying cognitive psychology and, and behavioral science, I would sort of wander across the quad to the business school and I would get very excited by what I saw were some, some very straightforward applications of things we knew in psychology at the time, but that marketers were just beginning to discover. Um, and so that began a career where I would sort of try to import ideas from what was going on um, in, the, in the ivory tower and bring them over to you know, marketers and, and, and retailers. And concomitantly, uh, I would try also to um, import uh, challenges, pain points, and struggles that marketers um, and different uh, managers were feeling in their worlds back into academia so we could make sure that um, some of our research was, uh, was on point. 
So, so that's uh, that's where you and I share that the common the common path, right? Is we like to take the concepts, the complex concepts of of behavioral psychology and, and cognitive neuroscience, and think about well, nobody cares about that. <laughs> how how do we take those things that that only us nerds care about, and uh, and take those and apply them to people in a way that their world where they actually care about them? That's what really drew me to you and your profile when I was introduced to you was that very few people think about how to take the, the, the complexities that are known to a lot of researchers in the academic world and put them in a way that's palatable and executable and actually practical in industry. And so what was your, what was your driving passion behind cognitive psychology from the very beginning? What was your, what was your interest level around human behavior? You know, first, I'm, re- I'm really glad we share that passion because as you, um, as I've seen in your work, I mean, you've, you've, you've brought so many great insights and even frameworks to the different organizations that you've been working with and, and, and certainly through this um, uh, podcast. So that's that's really exciting to have a kindred spirit out there. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, for me, you know, one of the most interesting ideas that um, that has had a lot of shelf life, if you will, in, 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 um, in the world has been kind of this idea of, of attention, managing attention, right, which is, uh, which is one of my, my, my favorite ideas, and also um, how to um, enable and facilitate choice making among consumers. Now, in retail stores and in, in supermarkets in particular, we've seen for many, many years that, um, you know, retailers and packaged goods companies have sort of struggled with this idea, right? You know, how do you, how do you get people to make the right choices, the best choices in a really, you know, expedient um, and, and helpful way? Well, a lot of that has to do with how you think about how people manage attention inside a very busy, cluttered environments like grocery stores can be, um, and how to sort of be a little bit of the signal and the noise. So that was um, it was sort of and, and continue, continues to be some of my um, um, keen, keen interest in that area. And do you think, uh, Paula, that there's, when I, when I think about decision-making, obviously it, you know, grabbing, grabbing someone's attention, especially in a world where, you know, some of the research says, yeah, I know it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a joke, but that we have attention spans shorter than that of a goldfish now as human beings. And when you walk around and look at people and their faces and technology, when it comes to decision-making in general, can you take us back a little bit to even just the biology of, of the brain, a little bit of how, because we're wired with that self, what we call self-preservation orientation, uh, what it takes to get us to a place where we're even open to considering doing something different. What have you found as in your experience through both research, but also then in application, whether it's consumer or otherwise, that, that it takes to get that attention that you're talking about? Well, so so part of managing uh, managing attention and load, as we can we, as we can talk about, is is really first very clearly understanding um, the, the the mechanisms of of attention. So. Somebody far cleverer than I once said, your greatest strength is always your greatest weakness, weakness, right? And that is the same case as with our brains, right? Our brains work in the same way. They're highly efficient. And so what they do is when, when there's a lot of, uh, lot of input coming towards, streaming towards the brain, what it's going to do is it's going to sort of manage that so you're not overloaded because the brain doesn't do well on overload, Right. And so, when you think about that in, in the natural environment, now what, what we've done what we've done to ourselves, regrettably, is we have we have constant onslaught, right, of all these different data streams. They're coming at us um, from a variety of different different standpoints. We are sort of embedded in sort of our, our digital worlds, and it becomes increasingly harder uh, to sort of stand out from all of that barrage, right, of of of, of stimuli that's sort of, sort of out there, um, almost um, smacking us left and right. Right, it becomes very, very difficult to sort right. of um, uh, you know punch punch through that or, or or get through that. And so, 
um, one of the interesting ideas that I've, I've tested and, and others have, have, have well is this idea of creating an interruption zone in certain environments, right? How do you sort of stop that and create a little bit of an, uh, of an interruption, right? So in, if we talk about in retail and consumer goods, you know, the way you do that is you sort of, you, you literally, people turn a corner in a store and they're confronted with something that's bigger um, or more unusual than what sort of their system is sort of priming them to expect, right? So that's sort of an interruption. Um, digitally, you might um, you might have something like um, you know you 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 might have um, on your new smartwatch, right? Uh, where you've been stagnant for a while, you might have that little that little vibration that's reminding you to sort of get up and move, and it's 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 still new enough um, that your system sort of will still stop, get interrupted, and attend to it. So being able to harness that is the trick. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I love your your thoughts on this. We, we work with a lot of uh, our, our we do a lot of B2B clients in our, mm. in our consulting work. And we work a lot with the marketing teams on how, how to develop the messaging based on what we call the buying brain. And what we find is, is that their comfort zone is, is writing copy and creating messaging um, that is safe. Mm. That's a, that's a lot. It's, they, they say they're using data-driven insights to write their copy and their messaging, but what they're really using is a bunch of facts and jargon to describe themselves in a way that's safe. And so, but the problem we find is, is because we know people, we, we, we make decisions primarily instinctively and emotionally, and then look to validate and recruit the logic and data to, to support that decision. You can't interrupt me with safe because I don't, I don't process it. There's nothing there that looks like it's that interesting to me. It's looked like I've seen it before mm-hmm. and you're engaging the wrong part of my brain. So for the marketers out there today, how do you, how do you take risk in a way that creates that interruption zone, but yet it still holds true to the brand and can grab the emotional attention? What are your thoughts on that? That's safe where so many companies and brands are trying to communicate in a way that almost seems safe, but yet it's having the exact opposite effect on that interruption zone you're talking about. Well, do you think it's safe or do you think it's familiar? Well, I would put it, yeah, exactly. Maybe, I would say maybe, maybe yeah. it's familiar, right? Maybe it's familiar yeah. because it's, it's sort of known. It's known. It's known territory, right? It's, 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 it's the, it's the copy that might've worked before, or it's, it's, it's the, it's consistent with the brand strategy. And so because of that, there is a, there's a tendency and a comfort and an interest in sort of um, replicating that, that, that message. But if you have a new, a new segment you're trying to reach, or if that that even if that given segment is is highly distracted, you might need a different a different strategy. So, or a, let's call it maybe not a different strategy, but maybe um, um, a, a, a little bit of an augment to that strategy, right? A little bit of a different tack, um, a little bit of a course correction. That's the word I'm looking for. We'll use our we'll use our nautical metaphors. Um, so, I, I think I think what um, what what we can consider doing is just really first making sure that uh, the work is behaviorally grounded, right? And not just for a minute, but sort of consistently to really understand that user, that consumer, where she is in space and time when you're sort of propagating that message at, at her. So if she's in a sort of a highly distracted state, right, you're, you're, you're probably going to use, uh, you know, maybe um, maybe a, a, a form of, of media that, that, that is, uh, you know, that she's, she's not expecting, right? Um, or you might, uh, you might use um, uh, something that's just, again, a little bit unfamiliar to you. I remember we were doing some, some testing uh, with, um, with the Virginia Department of, of Transportation, and they shared with me when they're trying to keep drivers focused on the road, they use a particular color. They use a particular color to sort of, let's say, interrupt that driver from whatever else she's doing and pay attention to what the road sign says. 
And do you know what that color is? I would guess. Take a wild guess. I would guess red or orange. It's, it's, well, it's, it's actually a little bit of a composite, but it's sort of this fluorescent salmon. And the reason why that, 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 that punches, it punches through all different kinds of weather. Um, it, 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 it stands out to all different kinds of consumers. And so we began to make a case for using that kind of color inside an environment like a traditional retail environment that's peppered with reds, reds and blues and blacks and yellows, all those traditional brand colors, um, pick an unusual color that's not commonly seen because the system the system will sort of perk and say, oh, that's different. Maybe I should pay attention to that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and you know, the reason I, I look at everything on an individual learner basis. Mm-hmm. So when I said safe earlier, what I, what I, and you said familiar, the reason I called it safe was because to the marketer, safety first, self-preservation, familiar equals I don't lose my job. Because yeah. this, this copy is familiar to everybody, including my boss. Right. Right. But as a result, then we don't take risk and we don't take risk. We don't change. When we don't change, we don't grow. Mm. Now you can take a risk and fail. And if you're in the wrong type of a culture, sometimes that can, Mm. uh, you know, the fear is that, well, you know, this is going to cost me my job. Uh, But we we constantly challenge our clients to take, take big risks, but do so Mm. using behavioral science, do so using cognitive psychology. Don't just take big risks because you had a brilliant idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Use the information we know to be true about decision-making to then take the risk with. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And you've kind of spent your career studying, right? What what that could look like from a risk-taking in a digital age. And I I absolutely agree with you. And I might might just just, uh, build on that by sort of saying, you know, you take, um, you you have behaviorally grounded risk, and then you also, you mitigate the risk by doing the appropriate amount, uh, appropriate amount of, 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 uh, of testing and learning, sort of bringing this um, sort of uh, experimental mindset to sort of what you're, what, what you're trying to do. And I'm, I'm not talking about just sort of running a test market in, in Cleveland, but I'm, I'm talking about just sort of this, um, you know, this, um, this natural propensity to sort of test things, right? Um, so you 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 can understand the conditions under under which they they work, and that in and of itself, then you kind of create a culture um, that's that's very familiar and comfortable around experimenting constantly, and don't do it until you experiment and validate un- until you've done the experiment and sort of invalidated it. That's the way that you mitigate risk and you get people to to try things. Um, more often because you have a framework, right? Which is running, running the experiment to do it. And what I love about that is, and you can tell when you're in a culture that's like that is they, 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 they foster so much innovation and creativity because they're not afraid to take risk. But you think about it, Paula, that's how we're wired from birth. Mm -hmm. That's how we learn how to walk. That's how we learn that certain things are sharp and other things are hard is our brains are wired to, to, to learn by testing. And then we, we take that data, we process and go, okay, that, that thing over there with the, the pot on it, that thing's hot. Don't touch it again. <laughs> right, 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 it's, right. It's the same principle, right? When you're, doing, yeah. Cre- yeah, when you're doing creative <laughs> marketing is, is you get ideas and say, hey, I, you know, I'd like to test something, but here's the science behind why I think this will work behaviorally. And you test it. And by the way, sometimes salmon shows up to be a great idea, whereas other times you're like, nobody even paid attention. Don't do it. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. Exactly. I can think of another example where we were we were trying to figure out how to get people to interact with beauty products more. And we were working with um, we we're working with a, a drugstore retailer who was obviously invested in this. And we sort of came up with this heretical idea um, and they let us test it. And here's the heretical idea. Um, which was we created these rounded fixtures, right? Now, you know, you know how stores are, right? The, 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 the shelf lines and the fixtures, they're always straight. They're always straight because that's efficient, right? right. But you create a rounded fixture. What happens is the consumer is going to navigate that probably twice. She's going to go around it 
twice, and she's going to spend probably 40 to 50 percent more time interacting with those brands. That's a good thing, right? But um, and so all of our um, uh, you know all of our behavioral data and all of our research basically said, yeah, you know, stores ought to have rounded fixtures in them. Um, but what 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 happened was. Um, uh, you know, while everybody liked that idea from a marketing standpoint, uh, there was sort of a, a, a great concern that the risk was too high because you'd sort of risk and the costs were too high, right? You can't have a store that's round, that has all, all rounded things in it because that's, that really disrupts sort of an existing system. So sometimes you have this, you know, you have a little bit of this, um, you, you have a disruption that you want to introduce, even though you've tested it and the culture just ne doesn't necessarily support the change. Yeah. And I can't tell you, I mean, I heard this amazing phrase one time years ago, it said, money's the answer. What was the question? Yeah. And, and <laughs> if you think, if you think about it, well, my square shelves, I already have a, a supplier for those and I know my cost yes. per, per unit. Yes. And, and now you're telling me. And so some, some bean counter sitting in the finance department says we can't go to round shelves, even if we want to. Yes. And yes. you start to think about communicating change in an existing system that is stuck in status quo. And that's where I love a lot of the work that, that Kahneman and Traversky and others have, before us have, have found that, well, you got to be able to communicate that it will change at twice the urgency to avoid a loss than to pursue a gain. And sometimes we want to go in with our, with our change message of we need round. Everybody loves round. Round shells will be great. We should make mm -hmm. round stores, round products, round, round, round. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone goes, no, 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 we can't do that. It's scary. It's frightening. And it's going to cost us a billion dollars. You got to go in with the, what we stand to lose if we don't change with the round. Yes. And then you know, that storytelling aspect of change, what's been, been your experience around some of that? Well said, well said, well said. Um, but, 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 but ab absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think, but now, now, now we're pivoting to sort of, you know, how, how to really change the culture. Right. Yes. And, and so what, what do you use the carrot or do you use the stick or do you use both? Do you use some, some, do you use carrot some of the time and a stick some of the time? Because what, what happens is when people settle into, um, as you, as you pointed out earlier, people settle, settle into behaviors that have worked before. It's very hard to nudge them forward to get them to change the behaviors. Right. So, um, and that's true of marketers. That's true of store operators. That's true of all of us. It's very hard. It's very hard, particularly because they, they in some ways, they, they work before. The campaign worked before or that, the, whatever, whatever it is that I, that I wrote before. And so, um, or, or that I did before. So when we, when we think about, um, you know, leading, leading change, which is leading change is the course that I teach at Columbia. We talk a lot about really understanding um, when resistance kicks in and then how to sort of architect that buy-in. So really getting granular about understanding, you know, what happens in those, in those moments and, and what do you need more than, you know, because sometimes people will say, well, you just, you just got to communicate more. And the answer to that is, well, yeah, but it matters what you say and when you say and how you say. Absolutely. And how many times you say. So all of those variables. Um, uh, all contribute to sort of lowering resistance and sort of getting buy-in. So, so that leads me to a point where I really wanted to get to today was when it comes to leading change, because it's, it's humans we're dealing with here, right? And, and there just happen to be humans who are assembled in an organization. <laughs> uh, yeah. These same principles can apply to your family, can apply to your, your, your daughter's basketball team. These are very similar principles when people are stuck doing something the way they've always done it. By the way, we say that it works. But it's, it's a matter of degrees of how, how well does it work? We just assume that we think it works. We don't even know what's possible. So in your experience, when you, when you go into a system that's stuck in status quo, what practical advice would you give our listeners today to say, here's, here's a way, a framework or a structure or a, at least a way of thinking about how to communicate change in a 
in an organization that's stuck in status quo? Do you have any good, give us a little bit of your, your leading change course. Give us a little bit of that syllabus for a second. <laughs> Jeez, Jeff, I thought you were going to give me something easy to do, like, you know, solve <laughs> climate change or something, you know? <laughs> so how do you get people to change? Well, you know, happily enough, there's been so much written, uh, written on this and there's so much good, good research that's now sort of percolating to the, to the surface, you know, some, you know, uh, from from some of the wonderful tiny habits work um, that's that's come out of Stanford, just which is which is you, you you sort of attach something new onto something old and familiar, and and you sort of then scaffold your way up to sort of the 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 the, the big change that you that you want. Um, there's another school of thought that really talks about. Um, you know, uh, like Cotter talks a lot about sort of building urgency, right? You've, you've, you've got to get that burning platform and you've got to get your most senior person to get on that burning, burning platform. And then you, then you have to sort of get a quarterback to sort of move it around and, and get people, you got to get people spun up, right. To, to, to kind of get, get things, um, get things going. So there's, I, I guess, you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, different schools of thought on that. And the answer to that is, you know, it, you know, when it comes to corporate change, um, First, you know, the first big idea, I think, is really understanding at a deep level and taking time to do it what what the resistance is about, because the resistance is about a human reaction. And it's not simply, oh, my gosh, I'm going to lose my job. The resistance may be about oh, this really may not be the right thing for the company. And I don't know how to say that because I'm just a junior manager down here. Or I'm sort of a middle manager um, or it may right. be, you know, it. it and so to create, to, to, to basically to really understand, um, you know, what, what happens when, when, when people put the brakes on a little bit and then being able to, um, you know, uh, have some very honest, open um, conversations to create the appropriate climate, um, not to. Not to, not to bring up climate change again, but it is, in fact, you, you're creating sort of the right climate and ecosystem where sort of change can flourish. You're feeding and watering the, the, the patrons of the system or the dwellers in the ecosystem to you know, sort of, um, you know, to uh, accommodate the change. And, of course, it depends what the change is, right? You know, from, geez, let's put basketball courts in our head office to, you know, we really need to take 90% of our budget and put it in digital. I mean, those kinds of changes, those are... Um, though those are wildly different kinds of changes, but again, my, my, my best is, uh, advice is really take time to understand the, the pushback. And there's, there's some models, um, you know, that, that basically speak to this and I can send some resources along. Yeah, that's, that, I think that's super helpful. And I think that what we, 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 we constantly try to get our, our clients to, to think about is depending on the size of the organization, it's a factor of scale. Yeah. The more humans you have in the, in the change movement, the more likely you are to have significant resistance. And usually what we find is, is that it's a, it's a matter of lack of context to the vision as it applies to me as an individual. Mm-hmm. And, and in order to, to change an organization, you have to change, generally speaking, you usually have to change an individual belief. Um, and, and if I don't understand the vision and I don't have the context, behind the change, I'm going to go into self-preservation mode and crawl back in my safety box. That's just the way I'm wired, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and so I think for the leaders out there listening today, this is really, really good stuff because I want you to think about, you don't just walk in scorched earth and say, we're going to start mm. putting 90% of our budget into digital. You have to, you know, you have to really take the time to create that, recast that vision, yep. uh, goals, objectives, and work it down to the organizational, down to the individual level from a context standpoint, so that you can start to get your quarterback involved in helping move people at an individual level. You have mm-hmm. thoughts on that from organizational to individual when it comes to change? Yeah. I mean, uh- 
you know, one, one thing that's actually helpful in there is, is um, you know, you, you, you have to find within every organization, you have to find your, your influencers, right? And, your, and because they can turn into your champions, they can be activated, um, they can be activated and they can have, you know, they exist at all levels of an organization. They're not just, you know, they're not necessarily the most vocal, but they do hold, um, they do hold power. So if you can find a way to get to, um, you know, some of those influencers within the organization, that, that, st- that requires understanding kind of the social networks that reside within the organization and right. then finding a way to activate them and getting them to champion. That really is an enormous shortcut, right? That cuts your work in, in half. Um, really, if you can, if you can do that, that's, that's one way, that's one way. Um, and then also just really, there is an art and a science to making the benefits wildly salient. And I often think we don't do enough of a good job of that. Like, for example, you know, there's, there's a change coming down the pike. So what happens, you know, the change people, they write a memo and out it goes. But when we think about behavior change, behavior change and you, you, you coming from from healthcare, right? You, you know this. Um, if it were simple, as simple as telling a diabetic to really, you know, stay on their food plan, then, you know, to to, to eliminate diabetes, then it would have happened by now, right? But it takes right. kind of repeated um, and and um, repeated nudges, and also uh, uh, for some, just a real uh, um, clear understanding of what 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 the benefit is going to be to them. Um, or the dangers. Well, one of the resources that we like to reference a lot to this is, is BJ Fogg's work out in Stanford with the change activation model, right? Is how motivated is someone to change then how hard or easy yeah. on the ability scale do you make it for them to do so? And, that, and you're getting kind of into that, right? Yep. yep. Um, and that's, uh, there's just so much that goes into this. And I think about when, what it all comes down to though, in my opinion, is the ability for a leader inside an organization, whether you're a team of four or a team of 4,000, to be able to communicate effectively, understanding that everyone you're talking to is filtering every bit of information through the lens of self-preservation. And if you, if you don't understand that biological change resistance is inherent to people, then you're always going to pitch things either scorched earth style and, and make it look like do it or not do it or else, uh, or you're going to pitch things so aspirational that people mm. will never connect to, to your point, to the benefits of the behavior change. As leaders, we have to remember that the easiest thing in the world for me to do is to crawl back in my safety box. It's just, it is. Um, And so that's why having an expert like you on here who spent so much time researching this in the consumer space, I mean, you know exactly what an organization can do differently in order to get a consumer to look up long enough to buy, to change. Um, And you go inside the organizations and outside, it's similar behaviors. So. Uh, one of the other areas I wanted to delve into a little bit before our time's up is this idea that the world is so full of data now. Mm. <laughs> you know, we've never in, the history, <laughs> in the history of mankind had access to this much data. So my question is twofold. One, where is it going? What does it look like to you? Uh, what do you think all this age of, of information and data is going just generally for humanity? And then two, what should we be concerned about or not concerned about when it comes to privacy relative to data um, in today's day and age? So, yes, uh, again, I come back to what I began our conversation with. When when I see this plethora of data, I'll talk about it from an organizational standpoint and then probably from a consumer standpoint. Um, and of course, making a connection between the two. So, So from a consumer standpoint, what what huge amounts of, of data this plethora of data means is that uh, that that overload um, 
vulnerability is rearing her head again. And so we need to, we need to consider that we need to manage it for ourselves, for our, our loved ones, um, for our, 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 our colleagues, right. Uh, in, in, in a way. So, um, the, the flip side of, of data is just, I'm not sure people are now optimized to make the best decisions, um, because of that overload factor, which, which truly, truly concerns me. Um, on the, on the, um, on the organizational uh, uh, end, I mean, I think the the oodles of of data and you know moving thankfully beyond. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but just you know, clickstream data is not is not the only source of behavioral data to really understand how people make choices, right? So now we have just we have this 360 degree view of of consumers, and we can really create. Um, you know, personalized offers, and we can we can reach them in in in, in unique ways. But we have to be cognizant of uh, of the privacy issue, right? Because every brand's coming to the table saying, "Oh my gosh, we can our we now have we have like a zillion touch points." So now we're gonna the the tendency to flood um, that 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 consumer is you know has has to be has to be balanced, right? It has to be balanced because uh, we've already seen some some. Uh, some some pushback around consumers going wait 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 too much too much too much um, too much you can't have all of me um, just because you're giving me twenty percent off of that pair of shoes you just simply can't so right. um, it's it's a balancing act it, it, it certainly is a, a, a balancing act on on uh, on all parts and I think it'll take some sensible thoughtful conversations right um, to understand what it's going to look like in the future yeah I tell you. I, I, I... I really didn't hear this conversation very often, even a few years ago, but now I hear it all the time. Even in our offices uh, here, we were talking about just the other day, uh, one of the team members made a comment about how, you know, Amazon now must be in cahoots with Facebook and Google because they're all three co collaborating to attack them with everything they can. <laughs> when they buy something on Amazon, it's immediately showing up on Google, which is showing up in their Facebook feed. And, and, and that whole collective noise is, yeah. it's a, it is, you're right. It's an onslaught. Um, and it's, I think it's getting frustrating for the consumer, but th that's going to put everybody in the marketing world in, in a place where we got to figure out how do we continue to get separation from the pile when everybody's doing that 360 degree barrage and it's all interconnected. Right. And so how do you stand out? You can't just paint everything salmon. Right. Well, yes, I know. It's a nice, or make everything curved, right? Curved and rounded. I mean, it's, I mean, you probably, we probably have to find different, different ways. Um, uh, and maybe that game will change. Like before, when I talked about interruption zones, it was about sort of, you know, piercing the veil in a way. Right. But maybe now, maybe now the opportunity is um, that it's, it's, there are more boundaries about when, when is appropriate. Um, to, to, to communicate, right? And sort of we move to a system where, um, you know, you have to be, consumers have to sort of in, invite you in and the person that, or the brand that gets invited in is the brand that is the most behavioral, is the most, has done the best job of winning over the consumer by virtue of, of, of understanding her right. rather than just broadcasting the message. And, and that, in my opinion, that, that is the, the heart of everything is trust. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that what you're describing is, is that brand builds genuine trust with the consumer and then they'll be invited in. Yes. And I think right now it's, it's becoming a little bit harder to do that with the, with the noise. But, you know, that's the world we're living in today and, and doing things different out there. And I'll give folks a few tips. And we, what we're even learning here at Brain Trust is you know, I do a lot of keynote speaking and a lot of public speaking uh, all over the world. And, and digitally now it's people can find information on me everywhere. But you know who ha what has the best impact is when we send an actual physical speaking brochure in the mail 
to a meeting planner. They literally go to the mailbox because they don't get it anymore. <laughs> they, exactly. They don't get mail anymore, right? So it's, now, right. it's the new interruption for them. That's right. Exactly. Um, so mm-hmm. think creatively out there for those listeners who are into marketing or sales. What can you do with your prospects today that maybe you used to do 30 years ago? Yeah. Um, and now it's, now it's, now it's abnormal. Right. That'll be the interruption Paul is talking about. So, um, well, Paul, where, where can, uh, where can folks, is there, you want to point them to any place to learn more about either you or any of the research you've done or articles you've written? Is there anything that specific? Uh, you know, not, not at the moment. I mean, I can, I can, um, if, if anybody's interested, they're, they're welcome to contact me. I'm, I'd be delighted to sort of dialogue, um, and my, my email is uh, pp2611 at columbia.edu. Um, I'd love to hear about sort of what, what's challenging challenging people and their own their own journeys and their own stories, of course. And Paula is also available on LinkedIn. You can go see her profile on LinkedIn. Um, and is there, I assume with Columbia now, you guys are, do you offer online uh, courses as well? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So if you're interested in some of that, you can check out Columbia University School of Professional Studies. Um, you'll find her smiling face there as well. Uh, well, Paula, I know this was a short time, but this is the way we like to keep it because, you know, everyone's ADD these days. So half the audience quit listening 10 minutes ago. Um, so we'll just go, <laughs> we're going to land the, land the proverbial plane. And I wanted to thank you on behalf of uh, Brain Trust Nation and Driving Change Nation for being on today. It was very insightful and we really appreciate it. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. And thanks to your audience. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.